Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 366th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Darren Byler, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, who is going to talk to us about the Uyghur Muslim voices in China. The history buff for today's show is Terry Toplin. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapzattel. Our producer is, and as always, is Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Tanarin, and today we'll be talking about Uyghur Muslim voices in China with Dr. Darren Byler, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Darren, what got you interested in the Uyghur? Uh, the Uyghurs are a group of around 12 million people uh, in northwest China, and I, I first encountered them uh, in 2003 when I was an undergraduate student and I was traveling abroad. I was studying photography and, and taking pictures for for a journal, and, and I went to northwest China, and I, I was just really surprised to find this group of people that, that are quite different from other people in China um, that look different. They're a Turkic Muslim group, um, and they live in a desert area in these cities that are built out of the desert um, that are you know, pre-modern cities but are, are functioning as modern cities. Um, and it was just a, a really interesting space, and, and, a, and I decided this is something I really want to look into to, in a deeper way. Okay. Um, can you give us a little bit about their history? I mean, I, we all throw in our ideas for the shows, the um, uh, history buffs and, our, and Jay and I, and this was my throwing into the kettle because I read an article in the New York Times, and uh, it was kind of an introduction to me about the Uyghurs and their condition. Can you give our listeners a little bit of their history and uh, the relationship with the uh, present-day Chinese government? Sure. So, so the Uyghurs entered the historical record around the 9th century. Um, but prior to that, they, they had existed. They just hadn't been in, in the history books. Um, and uh, around the 10th, 11th century, they converted to Islam. So the Uyghurs live on what was the, known as the Silk Road. Uh, there's lots of travelers coming through, and they brought with them religion. Um, and so Uyghurs converted to Islam um, and have been Muslims ever since. The Uyghurs themselves are, are very closely related to the Uzbeks and the Kazakhs and the Kyrgyz. Um, they are farmers. They live in oasis cities. Um, and they've kind of existed independently of, of any other state for quite a long time. That really began to change in the 19th century and 20th century uh, when larger numbers of, of, of people from other parts of China began to move into the Uyghur area and began to claim what is the Uyghur homeland as part of China. Um, wasn't really fully made a part of China um, in a strong, really strong sense until 1949, which is when the the, the People's Republic of China was founded. Um, but even until as recent as the 1990s, Uyghurs were still the majority group in their homeland. They were 90, 95% of the population. Um, and so it's really just in the last several decades that uh, natural resources that are located in the Uyghur homeland has brought more and more um, state enterprises and, and settlers from other parts of China into the Uyghur Uyghur homeland and and begun to um, 
really change the Uyghur way of life. And, and so that's why we've seen a lot of tensions being built up um, in relation to the Uyghurs and in relation to China. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about those tensions, because um, China has a, a large number of, of ethnicities. It's a, it's a huge country, obviously. Um, what seems to be the issue in terms of the, the Chinese government and the, the Uyghur in particular? Mm-hmm. Well, prior to 1949, the, the Uyghurs, like I've said, lived pretty independently. And even in the 1940s and 1930s, they, ha- they had their own state called East Turkestan. Um, after the PRC was founded, the People's Republic of China, um, that kind of dream of having an independent country was, was lost. Um, and so that has been a source of tension for a long time. People, the Chinese government, look, look at the Uyghurs as a separatist group, or that's how they've talked about them for, for decades. Um, then, as I, I, as I just mentioned, in the 90s and 2000s, when, when more and more people began to enter the, the Uyghur area to get out natural resources like oil and natural gas and eventually to build out industrial-scale agriculture that focuses on cotton and tomatoes, um, as all of those things were happening, uh, Uyghurs began to feel themselves being more and more dispossessed of their land. Um, so for the most part, Uyghurs were not given jobs in those new industries. Um, and so they just saw themselves being kind of pushed to the side and be, being kind of made homeless, even as they continued to exist in this space that had been theirs for a long time. Um, you're right to note that, that China has a, a large number of, of ethnicities, 56 official ethnic groups in China. The Han group is the largest group, 1.3 billion or so. Then there's 100 million people that are uh, minority groups. Um, the Uyghurs are just one of those minority groups, um, but they have been, I think, one of the most difficult for the Chinese state to assimilate into kind of mainstream Chinese life. And that's because Uyghurs, like Tibetans and, and Mongols to some extent, um, have a claim to a historic homeland. They uh, look different from Han people. It's, they can't really pass as Han. Um, and they speak a different language as their first language. And so those, those three factors taken together make those uh, three groups seen as the, the sort of harder minorities to, to assimilate. And then on top of that, the, the Uyghurs are Muslim, and, and Islamophobia is, is something that's present everywhere in the world, especially since 2001. Um, and that discourse has entered China um, in the last two decades with a, with a lot of force. Prior to 2001 and September 11th, uh, China hadn't talked about the Uyghurs as being potentially terrorists or extremists. Um, but over the last two decades, that's become kind of the dominant discourse connected to Uyghurs, is that they're They've been radicalized, that they're terrorists um, and, and, or potential terrorists, and, and therefore that the extreme measures can be taken against them. Well, you've talked about the uh, new Silk Road, or the old Silk Road, but of course now we have the new Silk Road, where China is trying to tie uh, Beijing into um, um, in Eastern or Western Europe. Uh, this many of these new roads and uh, railroad tracks go right through the heart of their traditional land. Um, how is that impacting their world today? Right. So initially, the, the infrastructure building was really just to get at those natural resources. 20% of Chinese oil and natural gas comes from the Uyghur region. Um, but as that infrastructure building was 
completed, uh, they began to think further about going to Central Asia. Um, and so that's why we started to see Xinjiang, the Uyghur, what the, the Chinese uh, name for the Uyghur region, see it being, being talked about as a core region of the New Silk Road. Um, and that means uh, a sort of overland route that will connect China to Central Asia, to the Middle East, to Europe, and to Africa. Uh, it's a whole system of, of railroads and pipelines and, and all of those things. So the, the Uyghur region is a central sort of node on that, on that network. Um, a, a railroad that will go to Pakistan goes directly through the Uyghur homeland, and in the north part of the region, um, there's railroads that go to Russia and to Kazakhstan. Um, so the, for those reasons, it's really important to the Chinese state um, to maintain control over the region. The, the New Silk Road, or sometimes referred to as the Belton Road, um, is seen as a, a sort of key development initiative of the Xi Jinping administration. Um, and so it's really central to his legacy as a leader. And, and so for those reasons, the Uyghur issue has really been pushed to the, the center of, of Chinese domestic and, in some ways, foreign policy. Okay. Um, we have, so I, I, I'm sorry, I may get the last uh, question here, so I'll try to make it fairly short. Um, so is there a strong sort of nationalist trend amongst the Uyghurs um, that, that the Chinese government is, is reacting to. I'm thinking of Chechnya and, and uh, Russia being sort of the, the equivalent there. Or is this something that, that, yeah, I mean, they're holding on to their national identity, but they're not, they don't seem to be actively sabotaging or resisting. I'm just trying to get a sense of, of how much the terrorist label is justifiably applied. Right. So that's a very good question. So, so there have been violent incidents that have been carried out by, by Uyghurs, and, and those are some of the, the, the things that are talked about frequently to justify the, the campaign of oppression towards the Uyghurs. Um, it's really picked up in 2013 and 14 um, when there was attacks at a train station in eastern China and in Tiananmen Square, an attack that where a vehicle was driven over tourists. Um, several other violent attacks that, that really do look very similar to what you know be internationally recognized as terrorism. But the Chinese state says that it goes much beyond, much farther beyond that. They would say there's been over a thousand attacks, um, and they label many things as terrorist events. So people protesting their land being taken for them from them. Um, a Han person com complaining about a Uyghur person you know, stealing their their cow or something like that. Those things are all can all be classified as a, a terrorist incident or as a as a sign of ethnic hatred. And the ethnic hatred always goes in one direction. It's always Uyghurs carrying out an, an act against the, the Han people who they see as settlers, as people taking their land. Um, so it, there's a conflation of, of sort of protests um, over injustice with. Um, terrorist action. Uyghurs themselves are seen as you know, not submissive or not submissive enough, um, and that has to do with them not learning Chinese language, um, kind of wanting to stay, you know, a part of this this Uyghur nation. Um, and in the past, that was was permitted, but now it seems increasingly it's, it's no longer being permitted by the by the government. Okay. Well, we have a lot to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
KALA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? This is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Darren Byler, postdoctoral fellow at the Center of Asian Studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. And we are talking about Uyghur Muslim voices in China. Our history buff for today's show is Terry Topler. Terry, uh, being that you're our resident expert on China, you get the first question. <laughs> oh, thank you. But uh, uh, yes, Dr. Byler, I have a question. Can you talk a little bit more about the re-education camps in Xinjiang? I understand that about one million have gone through these re-education camps and that they were uh, established under General Secretary Xi Jinping's administration. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, in the previous segment, we talked, I talked about how in 2014 there was a real uptick in, in violence, uh, or that's how it was talked about in, in Chinese media and, and the Chinese administration. Um, and Almost immediately after that, they started to talk about a, a de-extremification campaign, um, which would begin to, to limit Muslim expression um, among the Uyghurs um, in terms of sort of public demonstrations of, of religiosity. So they, 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 they put up signs that said that Uyghurs could no longer have beards if they were under the age of 55 and they were male. Uh, women could no longer veil themselves um, and that Islamic symbols were no longer permitted. Um, they actually listed 75 signs of extremism. Um, these were not uh, criminal violations or criminal signs, but they were signs of pre-criminality, of pot- the potential for someone uh, to uh, move towards terrorism. Because the way that they thought about it is that if someone looks Muslim, that they might act in a terrorist manner. Um, so it took some time for the, the re-education system to, to actually swing into motion. Um, initially, there was just a small number of camps where they sent sort of the key leaders. Uh, the, they call them wild imams, people that have been teaching people about Islam. Um, and then in 2017, a new party secretary from Tibet named Chen Chuanguo arrived, and he uh, instituted a new plan of building large-scale camps throughout the region. And so in April of 2017, we saw, saw large numbers of people being sent to these camps. Most of them were sent to the camps um, for religious violations, uh, these sort of pre-crimes of having attended the mosque too frequently or of having a beard or of, of in many cases, um, being part of a, an online study group to learn about the Quran, to learn about politics. Um, a lot of it was done on a social media app called WeChat. Um, which they, they got the ability to, to assess um, using technology surveillance tools. Um, so through that process, ar- around a million, we don't have exact figures, uh, people were sent to these camps, um, which actually are, are kind of prison space. Um, 
they're very, very tightly controlled spaces. Thank you. Um, go, okay. Uh, going back to uh, dealing with their life, uh, most of the time that I've gotten my information for, about the Uyghurs has been on the, through the New York Times, either through the paper or documentaries. And they just had an article recently with the concern of COVID-19 impacting these camps because the article said this is a perfect place for the virus to explode. Um, has there been much talk about how um, these individuals who are pretty much in prison, uh, how the, the pandemic's affecting them? Right. There's a lot of concern around that because what we know from, from people that were former detainees that were held without charge in these camps uh, for you know several months to over a year um, and then were able to get released because of um, pressure that came from places like Kazakhstan, what they've said is that inside the camp, it's, it's, the conditions are right are, are very bad um, in terms of health and sanitation. There's uh, there are a lot of overcrowding. Sometimes the cells have 20 or 30 people in them. Um, they're not permitted to um, use the bathroom uh, sort of freely. They have to ask permission, and it's usually timed. They have one or two minutes to use the bathroom. Um, during the day, they're, they're forced to sit on stools, small stools, plastic stools that are between the bunk beds of the cell. And they watch uh, kind of flat screen TVs that are mounted on the walls of the cell that, that have um, re-education messaging um, being broadcast through them. So it's, it's speeches from Xi Jinping, um, instruction in how to learn Chinese, um, things of that nature. Um, so because of the crowded conditions and the lack of sanitation, the, back, the lack of good diet, many people talked about losing a lot of weight uh, because they were on a, something like a starvation diet, less than 1,000 calories per day. Um, all of those things produce you know, forms of weakness that would make people very susceptible to something like COVID-19. Um, Darian, I'm, I'm interested. You talked about pressure from, from Kazakhstan. Uh, my sense of this is that one of the things that hasn't been happening is a great deal of pressure, um, international pressure, political pressure being placed on the Chinese government, um, particularly the absence seems most obvious with uh, Middle Eastern countries, with other Muslim countries, which really seem not to be saying a whole lot at all. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that may be true? Mm-hmm. Well, in the case of Kazakhstan, the, the people that were released, it was around you know, 1,000 to 2,000 people um, who had immediate relatives living in Kazakhstan. Most of them had been living in Kazakhstan before their detention. That was actually one of the reasons for them being detained, because they had been living in a Muslim-majority country outside of China. Um, so because they had a green card and passport, um, and they had connections in the Kazakhstani government. There was there was a, a an opportunity there for the Kazakhstani government to sort of put pressure on China, kind of behind the scenes, to get these people released. Outside of that population, there's almost none of the, the people that have been in the camps have been released. Um, and outside of Kazakhstan, there really hasn't been much pressure placed on on China. Um, that has a lot to do with with China being a, a global superpower. Uh, ha- and, it's, and in many of the, the countries outside of Europe and North America, um, many countries are feeling quite dependent on China for trade and you know, just the economic stability of their own nation. And so taking a stand on this issue is, is something that you know, take, has a real political and economic cost for them. 
Um, and so even Muslim-majority countries, the leaders in those countries are often not willing to, to take a firm stand on it. Um, the other thing that prevents a lot of sort of direct action or evidence-based action in relation to this is that the Chinese state has a lot of control over the narrative of, of what's happening in the camp. So they don't allow open access to them. Um, and because of that, there's, there's ways that people can excuse or, or can say that they don't have clear enough evidence um, of what's happening on the ground there. Um, and so all of those things make it a, kind of a murky and, and difficult situation for, for sort of the international community to respond to. Yes, uh, Dr. Byler, I read that in the twenty in 2010, there was destruction of Uyghur cemeteries. Can you talk about that, and why would the government want these destroyed? Mm-hmm. Right. So, since 2009, 2010, there there has been a sort of systematic destruction of of Uyghur shrines and Uyghur cemeteries. The the Uyghurs are are a Muslim people. Um, they're a Sunni group, um, but they also um, practice uh, Sufi traditions. So these are sort of lineage-based traditions of Islam that often center around uh, someone like the bringers of Islam, who 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 were those in the ninth and tenth century that came to the Uyghur area um, and brought Islam with them. And so they're shrines for these people, and those became pilgrimage sites for for many people to go to. Um, many Uyghurs couldn't go to Mecca on the Hajj, but they could go to these local shrines, um, and um, through that practice, they could they could build a community um, of Islamic practice. The state, after 2009, when there was some there was violence in the city of Urumqi, um, began to ban gatherings of Uyghurs, and so that was really the reason why they they began to close down these shrines and, in some cases, destroy them. Um, in 2017 and 18, the, the destruction of, of shrines became much more systematic. Um, They're just simply being wiped off and being replaced with either blank blank space or with parking lots, with parks, with um, housing developments. Um, these are both cemeteries and shrines. Oftentimes, the, the, they're they're connected. So, um, to, if you want to have a, a good afterlife, it's it's a good idea to be buried close to the shrine. Um, and so that's why there's that kind of conflation. Um, as a result, though, what's what's happening is that Uyghurs are kind of losing their sense of rootedness in place because they're an indigenous group to this area, um, and they're losing their family shrines, their family graves, um, and so that means that they they really are becoming a, a a people that that doesn't have a place. So it's it's something that's analogous to you know Native Americans having their sacred land being taken from them. That's that's how Uyghurs feel about it. Um, Darren, can yeah, we go, go ahead, back? Jack. To the New Silk Road, uh, if, if you've seen on a map where the tracks and the roads are going, it's mind-boggling. And along the way, China is lending a ton of money to these definite third-world nations that were not getting access to either transportation or uh, this kind of income ever before. Uh, do people really understand the economic grip? that China is putting on three continents at the, in many ways, I hate to say it, the, uh, the destruction of the Uyghur people. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess it depends on which people you're talking about. But I know that in, in, in places like in some of these African nations that are getting a lot of investment from China and a lot of infrastructure building, yeah. places in Southeast Asia where that's happening as well, 
um, it's seen as a, a real step forward for them uh, because it's a way of, you know, connecting them to the broader world. So, you know, now the, the 3G networks, 4G networks in, in, in Africa and other places are re- really being built by China. And so that means that people can get online for the first time. Um, China is also building factories in many of these places, mines and, and other things to get at natural resources. And that's giving people jobs. And so I think from some people's perspective, it's, there's some positives to it. Um, at the same time, I think many of them are not really fully cognizant of the, the maybe longer-term costs of aligning with China in this way. They don't understand that China is an authoritarian state um, and that in, in many ways authoritarian states in other places along the Silk Road are, are benefiting from, from the governance model that China is importing uh, along with all of these new technologies and infrastructures. Um, Darren, I'm interested go back to, to religious um, is the fact that that the Uyghur are Sufi oriented? Is that part of why maybe some of the mainstream Muslim countries haven't become quite as interested in their plight? I think that might play a, a something of a factor. Um, but many Muslim groups around the world are are Sufi in their orientation. Um, from North Africa to Central Asia, even in the Middle East, too. Uh, so I don't think that that's the primary factor. I think that the larger factor is that the Uyghurs have been, been cut off from the rest of the Muslim world for almost a, you know, a better part of a century now, um, which means that they haven't been able to travel and communicate with other Muslim groups outside of really Turkey. There's a significant number of Uyghurs in Turkey. And so the, the people in Turkey, they understand who the Uyghurs are. But many others, you know, they haven't really heard about them. It's a small group of Muslims in China, um, and they are at the same time benefiting from a relationship with China. And so it's, it's this unknown group of, of Muslims in another place, and uh, it's hard for them to see how they should um, you know, kind of stick their necks out for these people that they've never met. Um, so I think that's probably the bigger dynamic, is the national borders have really isolated Uyghurs in a, in a pretty strong way. Okay. All right. Terry, I'll let you have the last question. All right. Thank you. Yes, Dr. Byler, I'd like to talk a little bit about perhaps the complicity of some U.S. companies. I read that uh, the Chinese were using U.S. companies and researchers to collect DNA uh, to create a database that could track down Uyghurs. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. So in 2017, along with the camp system, the, the state also instituted a new data collection program called Physicals for All, where people in the Uyghur community were asked to go to the local police station or a, a lab and submit their, their biometric data, which was DNA, fingerprints, and blood, and all that, but also voice signatures and face scans. Um, that data was then used to create a, a huge database uh, that could be used to surveil them as they move through their daily life and also to look back through their digital history you know, in WeChat and other social media. Um, and there are some Western companies that, that worked with some of those, the DNA that was collected through that process um, to help produce a, 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 a data sequencing, um, uh, data sequencing tools. Um, and also to support some of the other surveillance tools. Um, so there is some complicity there. A lot of people in the West and Western technology firms are also trying to develop new methods for doing computer vision surveillance, um, for voice recognition tools, all the sort of smart 
devices that you might have in your home. Um, though, and, and the Chinese has the Chinese state has the most data to really work with, and so there's a lot of incentives for Western companies um, and scholars and others to to really integrate and, and become part of those projects because they can get kind of the cutting edge uh, data and and material to work with. Um, many people are not really thinking about the sort of ethical consequences or implications of that kind of work. Instead, they're thinking about how do I stay current? How do I develop the next kind of new thing in technology development? All right. Well, Darren, we always give our guests the last word on our show. So we would like to end with the question, why do you think knowing about the Uyghur persecution in China is relevant in today's world? Well, I think it's important because, first of all, it's a, it's a human crisis. This is a human tragedy. It's, it's a group that's on the brink of, of kind of being erased and replaced with something new. Um, and I think the surveillance tools that are being used in this space are also something that should be very troubling to everyone um, because they can be used in other places and, and will be used. So the, the Uyghur case is probably the first of this kind, and then we'll see more in other places. Um, Inside the camps themselves, uh, there's face recognition uh, surveillance systems. Um, people are not permitted to cover their face um, in front of the camera um, with their hand or with a blanket. And if, if they do, then the, they'll hear over the speaker system, stop covering your face. Um, so they're, they're really being tracked at all times inside these spaces. And so it's a new kind of carceral space, new sort of prison system that's being built. Um, so that that should be troubling to everyone, that, that this is a cutting-edge sort of surveillance tools being used to sort of eradicate or replace this group of people, um, something that, that all of us should be concerned with. And the, the further thing is that the these technologies are, are tied to our technology systems in the West, um, and many of the, the products that are coming from China are now being built by Uyghur forced labor, which I, I haven't even mentioned. Some of the people coming out of the camps are, are being sent to factories to, to produce textile and, and garments, um, and many of them are, are being sold to brands that, that all of us could buy from. So there's lots of ways that this is connected to us um, and lots of ways that we should be concerned for, for these people that are suffering in China. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes the 366th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsavitle. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Darren Byler, postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Asian Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, 
who talked with us about the Uyghur Muslims' voices in China. The history buff for today's show is Terry Toplin. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>